0: Many are the darkling forgotten facets of our world, and boundless is our secret fascination with them. For the next half hour, turn not a blind third eye to these twilight anomalies, but rather draw back the canvas portal and behold the wonderment that is MTV's oddities. Hello there, and welcome to the Fire and Water Network Presents. Find Your Joy, a series focused on the things that grant the members of this network all the feels in the best way. I'm Nathaniel Wayne, co-host of Tough Like a Girl and occasional guest on other shows across the network. And if you recognize my voice at all, there's a decent chance you're surprised to hear it on something that's called Find Your Joy. Through no intent on my part, I have developed a bit of a grouchy reputation when it comes to my podcasting output specifically. That's just kind of who I am. I'm the guy who goes, yeah, that was good, but there's this thing about it. Or who will see a trailer to a new movie and can't help but zero in on the ways that the film could end up bad based on what I've seen. That's just kind of what my brain does. I don't mean to do it, but it is the reality. Or to put it more succinctly, There is a reason that Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Network bestowed upon me the honorific of professional buzzkill. So what on earth am I doing here? Because believe it or not, there are things in this world that I love unabashedly and without reservation. And I wanted to talk about one of them today. So, that's sort of enough about me, specifically, and let's just get context for the thing I'm about to talk about here. The 90s is not well thought of, as far as uh, the medium of comic books is concerned, which uh, you'd know if you ever listened to my 90s comics retrial podcast over on the Council of Geeks podcast feed. How does one describe the 90s? There was an awful lot going on, Uh, some of it exciting much of it bad, especially in hindsight, one of the things that started promising, went off the rails, and then later on after the 90s managed to pull it together, was Image Comics. In 1992, a number of popular artists split from Marvel over royalty and creative control disputes to form their very own company, which they called Image Comics. The promise of creative freedom and control over one's creations soon lured in more talent, though sometimes said talent was of dubious quality. One of the early adopters after the initial launch of the company was Sam Keith, who published The Max No. 1 in March of 1993. The cover made the book seem like fairly standard Image Fair. All the negative space is black. There's a huge hulking brute in a costume with claws on the ends of his hands and what appears to be a splat of blood in the background. I mean, yeah, sure, it's in Sam Keith's fairly unique art style, but this really didn't seem like anything new, not at first glance. Inside, it seemed like it might end up being standard, as the cover kind of indicated, but there was something off. The world is a little weird the title character seemed to take a back seat to what one would presume to be the love interest character. And there there were these bizarre moments where the story would go from the streets of a grimy city, the fairly standard setting, to the verdant and vibrant landscape of a wild outback. But I'm not actually here to talk about that. Not the comics specifically. No, what I want to talk about is the MTV animated adaptation of the Max, which premiered in 1995 as part of the network's late night oddities lineup. This was basically the spiritual successor to Liquid Television, which had birthed Eon Flux and Beavis and Butthead a few years prior. So this was during a pretty experimental phase in the history of MTV, when the network was first starting to really move away from exclusively music-based content and was willing to try almost anything. It's hard to imagine any other network giving this show a shot prior to the creation of something like Adult Swim on Cartoon Network, but that would still be another decade off. Now, I first encountered this show by accident. You see, I didn't really have TV growing up. Oh, there were television sets in the house. Heck, I had one in my room starting around third or fourth grade. But there was no TV signal coming into the house. No cable. No rabbit ears. Nada. My mother hated TV, mainly because of the commercials and the news. I didn't want for entertainment I mean we frequently rented movies I had video games it was a Nintendo household for me and in my younger years my grandmother who did have cable and also the patience of a saint would record would record my favorite cartoons onto blank VHS tapes and send them to me commercials cut out and everything but one of the things I overheard my mother rail against every now and then when she would talk about TV with other adults was MTV. She thought it was gross and gratuitous, just not something anybody should be seeing. And it frankly built up a mysticism about the network in my mind. I wondered what could possibly be on this channel that got my mother so worked up. Now, I used to spend summers at my grandparents, the same ones where my grandmother would record my shows, And I did that really right up until high school, uh, going to a day camp down the street from them. And around the age of 13, I was getting... You know, rebellious isn't the right word, but yeah, let's go with sneaky. I wanted to know about the things that I'd been forbidden to see. And MTV still had that mystique about it. So in the summer of 1995, after my grandparents were in bed and I was supposed to be asleep, I snuck downstairs to see what I could see. By and large, I was just disappointed. Not that what I found on MTV was bad, but my mind had built up this raucous you know, concept that the reality just didn't even come close to. Heck, in terms of tantalizing content, there was stuff my mother had let me watch at home for way, that was, you know, way more risque than this. I mean, trading places I'd already been watching for years. Plus, honestly, this would have been the same year she introduced me to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But I kept sneaking downstairs, trying to catch something that would justify my mother's aversion to the network. I never really did find much but on one of those occasions i stumbled across an episode of the max i think it was probably the second or third episode i only remember a couple of specific images that i would have seen but it was mesmerizing and i was at the exact right age to encounter a more grown-up form of animation as i was you know i was growing out of the kids stuff but i never lost my love of the art Now, I wouldn't catch any more of the Max for a little while. It would be early the following year, my family took a trip to to visit one of my adult step-siblings and his family for a kind of family reunion thing. I ended up uh, crashing on the couch in the living room when it came to uh, nighttime and sleeping arrangements. It didn't exactly make for a restful night's sleep. So at some point, I started channel surfing with the volume turned way down. And I found it again. The Max. But this time, it wasn't just a random episode. It was a marathon of the series. And I sat enraptured by it. Don't worry, I wasn't up all night. The episodes are only about 12 minutes long, putting the whole thing in at around a little less than three hours start to finish. I spent quite a few years after that trying to get my hands on this show again once I was what passed for an adult I got a bootleg DVD of all the episodes which stopped working after a few years I got my hands on an old VHS version the kind that was originally put out after it ran on MTV which was missing an episode due to copyright weirdness it wouldn't be until around 2011 or so that I would find out the entire series could be bought from Amazon. They had worked out kind of a manufacturer on demand thing with a DVD released. And it had every episode intact and complete. And you better believe I snatched that up immediately. And it only managed to reaffirm that the show was just as bizarrely awesome as I remember it. In case you were wondering, Yes, I did also pick up nearly the entire run of the Max comic in trade in the intervening years as well. But while I like the comic a lot, I actually like the show a little bit better. And I'll go into some of the reasons why as we go along, but in short, the things that a television adaptation can feasibly add to a comic, you know, the voice work, music, the more direct control of pacing and so forth, they were all pitched exactly right the max animated series covers roughly the first 11 issues of the comic book along with some material that appeared in titles like darker image so in many ways this would be considered an incomplete adaptation since the story is more serial serialized than it is episodic but even though it ended the show, that is, ended before getting to the material that would have better explained just what the heck was even actually going on, it still managed to find a satisfying way to close out the show. So with all that context in place, here comes the hard part. Trying to explain what in the heck the Max is actually about. Okay, so there's this guy in a purple costume that covers literally his entire body. That's the Max. He pictures himself as a superhero, when in reality, he's a homeless man who lives in a box. His only real connection is a woman named Julie, a social worker with a lot of baggage. But the thing is, Max is kind of a hero, just not in the real world. Rather, in what he refers to as the Outback, He is a jungle warrior. The problem is Max doesn't really have conscious control over when he finds himself in the outback and when he finds himself in reality. This might all be inside Max's head, but elements from the outback begin to bleed into reality, or at least Max sees that this is happening. Other people don't seem to. All of this is complicated by the villain, Mr. Gone, who, like Max, flits back and forth between the two realities, although he appears to have better control and a much better understanding of everything going on. Later on down the line, we also get introduced to the justifiably mopey teenager named Sarah, who gets roped into all of this through her connections with the other characters, Julie primarily. To explain any further would, well, it might be spoilers and it would also probably be an exercise in futility because it's one of those things that it so much is communicated visually that to try and just say it, it ends up being way more confusing than if you were to just see it. The show is bizarre and surreal and frequently shifts perspectives between the four characters that I've named sometimes shifting visual style and animation techniques along with it. So, with as much of the plot as I feel secure in trying to convey, I want to talk about the visuals. The look is very much a straight lifting of the panels from Sam Keith's original comics, quite literally in some cases, actually. But it's not as static as something like, say, a motion comic. The show actually employs a great number of techniques that I see frequently in anime shows. Things like a slow pan across a character who only has a couple of elements that are actually animated. You know, things like their mouths if they're talking or their hairs waving behind them. Everything else is stock still. Now, the thing is, as I said, I've seen that in anime a lot, but I have rarely seen these kinds of workload-easing tactics used in Western productions that aren't also aping the anime aesthetic. So, while the tricks that the show uses to give it a more dynamic feel are certainly nothing new, they still feel unique when paired with this art style. And with a surprisingly small amount of elements actually being animated with movement, well, it means that movement is sometimes staggeringly beautiful. The hair on the Jungle Queen, that's Julie's Outback alter ego, was one of those images that stood out to me in that very first episode that I caught back at my grandparents late one night. But the animation also allows for some elements of the story to actually work better here than they do over on the comics page take the flashing back and forth between the real world and the outback on the page it just changes from panel to panel and while that certainly works it gets the job done doing it in animation where the max maintains his running animation but the environment he's running in suddenly changes around him without him breaking stride it just conveys the entire idea better there's this one amazing long shot. One of the few things actually unique to the animated series, this is not a direct lift from the comic, it pans across the city and occasionally flashes to the Outback equivalent of the same images. So a heavyset man slumped in a chair with kids climbing all over him becomes a down behemoth being ripped apart by small predators. A long-haired headbanger rocking out in his apartment becomes a wildly flailing beast tangled in a trap. It helps establish the Outback's connections to reality, while also establishing it being far more violent, despite being so much more vibrant in color and in mood. It is a glorious shot and does so much for the story. And as I said, that this shot isn't even in the comics. There are also random bits here and there, like when Max finds himself literally inside of a cartoon that he was watching on TV, It just feels like a more complete idea in animation than it did on the comics page. And there is a devastating and revealing flashback episode told almost entirely in moody stills from the comic that has no business hitting as hard as it does, but thanks to the music, the voice work, and the pacing, it works like gangbusters. But the most well-executed animation in the world is pointless if the characters aren't compelling. And man, this cast nails it. Let's get Max out of the way, because honestly, he's kind of the least interesting character. That's not actually a criticism. He's still a great character. I mean, it's just a fact, though. We learned relatively very little over the course of the series about who he was before he put on the mask, and he doesn't really seem to know much himself yet he's very much connected to both worlds he exists in in the first episode he reminisces about cheers his favorite tv show and it's clear he's been getting bailed out of jail by julie on a semi-regular basis for a little while now Hmm. did you know they canceled cheers yeah julie told me the other day i know all the people were played by actors and stuff and They all got new jobs, and even so, it's like they all died for no reason. They just turned away for a second, and they were gone. Everybody dies. He desperately wants to protect Julie, and he recognizes gone as a threat, but he's never able to wrap his head around what he's actually experiencing. He's single-minded, in a childish way. His understanding of the world is very pared down and simple, even as part of him recognizes that it's not as clear as he's trying to force it to be. He's strong, yet kind-hearted. He's easily confused, but the things he's experiencing are genuinely confusing. He puts so much stock in the concept of protect Julie, stop gone, that he clings to that as a lifeline. And there's a sweetness to him that keeps his dependence on Julie from ever crossing over into being creepy or stalkerish. The voice work of Michael Haley does a lot to help that as well. He's got a gruff but lovable quality to his voice, somewhat reminiscent of John Goodman. Then there's Julie, who probably has the strongest claim to main character status of anybody in the show. And she's just a glorious mess, in a way that feels extremely real and well-realized. She's a woman who works very hard to have command of her own life, but is haunted by events in her past that made it clear how easily that can be stripped away from her. As Keith has a tendency to do, the way she is designed, posed, and drawn makes it very clear that she is beautiful, but at the same time, she is not the standard comic book female body shape, and certainly not of the 90s era. She's bottom heavy, she has a notable stomach pudge, but it's never visually treated as a flaw, even though Julie herself very clearly feels that it is. You see me as some little miss perfect to be seduced and disposed of. Actually, I'm pretty flawed, you know. I've got a fat stomach and chafe marks where my jeans can in. Bad breath from eating the wrong stuff. And my underarms are stubbly. You, however, have a problem with women. And Julie is perceptive. She has the number of pretty much everybody in the story. Except for herself. Ultimately, this story is primarily about her coming to grips with the events of her own past and figuring out how best to move forward from them without just ignoring them. She can be sweet, bitter, even ruthless at times, but it all still feels like the same person, all hung together by the voice work of Glynis Tolkien, who would go on to voice Sarah Kerrigan in the original Starcraft computer game before moving on to a career as a novelist. Much like Max, there's a realness to her voice. It doesn't sound affected or pushed to better fit a certain character archetype. It just sounds real. As for Sarah, she manages the impressive task of being a late addition to the story with a heavy focus, but still feeling organic to everything. She could have felt very shoehorned in, especially during the episode she gets to narrate about her own life. But that perspective fits the show, and it does a good job of justifying her attitude and her connections to everything going on become clearer as the show progresses towards the tail end. She is pretty much a stereotypically mopey teenager, but... She feels like one of the more honest depictions of that that I've seen come out of that time period. Mom says she's not angry at me, not really. Sometimes her screaming and crying fits can last all night. So I share and tell her it's okay, mother her. It's weird, dad left her and in a way she left me. About this time I started carrying a gun. That's what us writers call foreshadowing. Again, the well-cast voice of Amy Danless helps seal the deal, but I have saved my favorite for last, the chocolate-voiced villain, Mr. Gone, voiced by the late, great Barry Stigler. Stigler was the only cast member who had a voice acting resume of note, both before and after this show, and hearing him work his way through what could have been a grating villain, but instead, getting to hear him monologue in such a way that you don't even want to hear him stop talking makes it very clear why. I'm not sure I can articulate what it's like to hear this guy's lines, line reading, so I'm just going to hand it over to him and give you a taste from some of the episodes where Gone gives a simplified recap at the start of the show. Most of us inhabit at least two worlds. The real world, where we're at the mercy of circumstance, and the world within, the unconscious, a safe place where we can escape. The Max shifts between these worlds against his will. Here, homeless, he lives in a box in an alley. The only one who really cares for him is Julie Winters, a freelance social worker. But in Pangea, the other world, he rules the Outback and is the protector of Julie, He's jungle Queen. There, he cares for her, but he always ends up back in the real world. And me, old Mr. Gong, <laughs> only I can see that the secret which unites them could destroy them. I could be helpful. <sighs> ah, screw it. I think I'll have some fun with them first. <laughs> But beyond the frankly astounding voice work, the character himself is pretty dang fascinating. Gon is unquestionably the villain. He is a bad guy, he's a rapist, he's a murderer, he's a misogynist, and all of this is made abundantly clear right off the bat. And yet, in his own perverse way, he's trying to help Julie work through her issues and confront the things she doesn't want to. Of course, he just so happens to enjoy putting her through hell in the process, but there is a bizarre kind of concern he has for her, as well as for Sarah later on. He can't stand Max, of course, but that's because the big oaf won't leave him alone and just let him work his way through his plan. Gone has by far the best understanding of what it is, that's going on all around them. But that doesn't make him some omnipotent tormentor like, I don't know, Q from Star Trek. In fact, one of my favorite things about him is that he openly admits to not being very good at the handful of unique skills and abilities he appears to actually have. Or, as he himself puts it, I'm Mr. Gorn, a student of the Mystic Arts. Unfortunately, an untalented student, or I wouldn't have to keep shooting fools like you. He can have the smooth, even tone of somebody who's in complete control one minute and lash out at the world because of how little control he actually has the next. Much like Julie... He's a mess of conflicting traits and elements. But whereas Julie is trying to be the best person she can she can be, given her issues, Gone has taken the divergent route and seems to be trying to slough off whatever benevolent traits he has left. But just like Julie can't escape her damage, Gon can't totally abandon his concerns for a select few people he cares about That aren't himself, even if those cares are still twisted and sick and probably not in the other people's best interest. As I said, the show ends in a way that can feel a bit abrupt. It kind of threw me off the first time I ever saw it. Things get to a transitional point. We get a bit of a symbolic and possibly metaphysical final note sort of created for the show to go out on, And that's it. It's done. But as time has gone on, I've come to really adore this ending. Not because what came later in the comics wasn't, you know, good or anything like that. What the comics did was fine. But because so much of the stretch that makes up the animated series is about coming to grips with the past and then moving forward. And the result is, it feels fitting that the show, even though the comic went on, the show ends at the point at which most of the characters are able to do that exact thing. But with the show, we just don't get to actually see where they move forward to. That part is unknown, but we've watched them get to the point that they're able to do that nonetheless. It makes the ending simultaneously hopeful and melancholy. Which gives the tone of the series just the right feel, I think. The Max is a lot of things, sparsely animated yet skillfully so, almost slavishly loyal to the source material while taking full advantage of the new tools that animation brings. Amazing voice acting by mostly unknowns, some doing their very first voice work, that is honest where it counts and over the top where it fits. It's symbolic and confusing. Beautiful in a way that is, at times, grotesque. It doesn't really have what most would consider a proper ending. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I find my joy in the Max Animated series, and I just thought I'd share some of that with you. Fire & Water Presents is a Fire & Water Network presentation as one might assume. Go to fireandwaterpodcast.com to leave comments or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget to check out all the other great shows on the network, and I'll see you around.